Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street entered bear market territory as investors girded for a prolonged economic downturn with supply chains strained by post-pandemic demand, China's lockdowns, and Russia's war on Ukraine, among many other factors. Boeing had a mixed week. In the good news column, the company's Starliner spacecraft successfully made it into orbit and docked with the International Space Station, and it appears that the crash of the China Eastern 737 Uh, sadly deadly for all 132 on the aircraft, was not caused by mechanical failure, but uh, by a deliberate act by the uh, pilot of the aircraft. That said, more prominent voices are calling for management change at the company. And at a time when investors are already jittery about international trade, London has reignited a Brexit drama. To date, COVID has killed at least 1 million Americans and more than 6.3 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, we got great reviews for the show last week, but it's great to have everybody together uh, again. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, happy, happy Sunday, indeed, uh, indeed to you all. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, uh, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, uh, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Tough week, uh, very tough week on the street. How did the group perform, and what were the drivers in the sector? The S&P was down uh, almost exactly 3% on the week. Uh, If you look across the sector, uh, Boeing was down about 5%. The, The large defense contractors uh, roughly, we're down about two percent. Um, if you if you look at some other stuff, um, some of the, uh, the services guys, you know, Booz Allen reported this week they were down about two percent. Uh, the aircraft lessors um, actually did quite well. Um, uh, Aircap reported earnings this week; they were up about five percent. Air lease was flat. Uh, so you're seeing you're seeing some differentiation um, in how the market is reacting to this. The, the, the aircraft lessors had already been hit pretty hard uh, after the the whole uh, Russian thing. Um, so maybe you know, you're starting to see the reverse a little bit on that. Um, the other things we track, interestingly, the, the tenure um, starting to pull back from the 3% level. It broke through 3% this week. It closed about just under 2.8%. Um, and one way to interpret that is the, the bond market starting to you know, price in. Um, you know, the Fed maybe being less aggressive. Why would they do that? It's pricing in a recession. Uh, and that's what I think you're seeing drive a lot of this 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 volatility. The VIX index has been holding right around 30 plus or minus a little bit, closed the week just almost exactly at 30. And then you know pretty much the all-star champion on the week in terms of stock performance was uh, Terra and Orbital. Um, their stock was up almost 27%. For those not familiar, it's just, it's just uh, a um, CubeSat manufacturer, and they they went some contracts with uh, Garpa, DARPA and delivered some satellites so that the market was, was pretty happy about that. Uh, and then if you uh, look again at uh, oil prices, oil prices are in that, you know, broadly across the group, uh, and the, all the different flavors of oil, uh, anywhere from 110 to 120. So energy prices remain, remain high globally. Um, Sash, uh, European markets um, had a, <laughs> uh, European and Asian markets had a tendency of uh, reflecting uh, these kind of global economic jitters. Walk us through uh, how markets in Europe performed, how the group performed, and then also give us kind of a flavor uh, globally, right? I mean, we had elections. Uh, Anthony Albanese going to be the new uh, Australian prime minister. Uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian, the outgoing French foreign minister, expects, uh, expressed great happiness uh, at that outcome, in part because Morrison uh, had uh, partnered with Joe Biden and um, uh, Boris Johnson uh, on the AUKUS uh, deal scrapping 
uh, a French-designed uh, conventionally-powered Barracuda submarine. Not to get into that uh, hole, but the president of the United States also, is also in Asia. A lot of deals being struck there, uh, partnership to monitor uh, Chinese fishing. Sort of give us, you know, help us make sense of this on a, from a global standpoint about how the group is performing despite economic concerns. Yeah, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. The uh, European markets tend to follow the US day by day, but actually not so much week by week, month by month. And just looking at the European stocks and our coverage, they are they're towards the bottom of their their range of the last you know, month or so. But but they haven't actually gapped down yet. There are some stocks that have um, you know underperformed during uh, during the week a bit. Um, but uh, you know it really wasn't it wasn't a terribly dramatic Friday Thursday Friday uh, in that respect at all. So I would say there's some towards the bottom. There's been profit taking definitely in some of the defence names since they reached their highs post mid February. So uh, you know Rheinmetall, which uh, got up to about 215 euros, is back at about 192 something like that. Um, but you know on the other hand, uh, Leonardo. Is pretty much at its. Um, I was going to say it's post-war, but it, you know it's wartime high. It's it's at just a, a touch under ten euros. Um, and Airbus back at one hundred and seven. You know it, it peaked before the war at about one hundred and thirteen, one hundred and fourteen, uh, but it hasn't gone down. You know it hasn't sort of gapped below one hundred euros, and uh, which you would expect if the European markets were really worried about the economic uh, impact of high inflation and the fact that U.S. markets are in bear market territory and the implications of that for, for economic growth. So I think overall, European markets are a bit, uh, a bit more muted uh, than, uh, than that. I think they're sort of, you know, still paradoxically, aerospace and defence firms are seen as being relatively defensive uh, in the sense that they make stuff that people want. They have, particularly some of the civil companies, significant aftermarket exposure. And, you know, when we look at that flight overall, and you know, I was just remarking to, uh, today to, to my wife, you know, these anecdotal stuff, and they're deeply dubious in terms of my profession. But we have not seen this many contrails in the sky over London for two and a half years. It's you know there are t- dozens of aircraft at any one time, uh, and so the short haul market, which is what people uh, have you know really focused on as being the, at the leading edge of this recovery. Uh, is is doing fine at the moment. It's not being uh, hit by uh, fuel costs. Clearly, Q3 is going to be really interesting, and Q4 even more interesting. But just at the moment, we're not seeing we're not seeing the impact yet. I want to get to the um, Australian submarine deal uh, in uh, in a moment. Obviously, Anthony Albanese is uh, the new Australian uh, Prime Minister, Labour Party driven uh, to office in part because of his climate uh, concerns, uh, and you know, in part because of how uh, climate. Uh, driven disasters uh, have been deadly uh, and economically incredibly costly for Australians. Um, China is uh, continuing to lock down. So however bad we think the economic news is and how strained supply lines and supply chains are, uh, they're likely to get worse. There might be a strike uh, or at least labor negotiations on the West Coast of the United States with the union controlling um, the 29 uh, uh, West Coast ports in the United States. That could also be another looming factor as we resaw during the, uh, as we've seen in the past. So to give us your sense on how the China moves are going to be affecting not just the economic picture in Asia, but the global economic picture. The interesting thing about the Chinese lockdowns is they've been done on a major city by major city basis. Therefore, some companies and some industries have, have felt at various stages, you know, when it's been either, you know, Shanghai or Beijing or so forth, that they, they've been able to to dodge that particular bullet. I, I'm not sure that's going to be something that, uh, uh, you know, industry is going to be able to um, feel confident about as we uh, go through Q2 and, and into Q3. Although clearly, as, you know, as the, as the weather improves, that tends to reduce the impact or the, the, the uh, spreadability of the virus for a bit. But um, yeah, you know, this is going, the supply chain is going to be the issue for the whole, probably the whole of this year. All our companies mentioned it on their uh, Q1 results calls. And they mentioned this as a, as a risk only. I suspect it's going to be a, more, a bigger risk as we go into Q2. And the issue, it's always important to remind listeners, is it doesn't tend to be the big subcontractors, the big partners. It's the tier twos, the tier threes, the tier fours. It's the stuff you've never heard of until it turns out that one connector uh, can stop a major aircraft program from being delivered. And then that connector has something be it only a you know a tiny component from China that they can't get. So yeah, that you know I think that's going to 
continue to be an issue. And Q2 is going to be really interesting in terms of how companies address that. I suspect there's more risk on the downside in terms of company guidance than, than upside. Uh, it's always the unknown unknowns, uh, right? Uh, at the end of the day, it's it's well, not. This is, it's no, not this what is a, this is a known unknown. This is a, this is that we know that we don't know how bad the supply chain. Yeah, is be. yes, exactly, exactly. But I was I was just saying, right? I mean, if you accounted for it, it wouldn't have been a problem. It's that you, yeah. you know, you know, you can't account for everything, uh, and so that's that. You know, you know that there's an iceberg out there. Richard, we we just heard uh, Sasha talk about the number of contrails that are going overhead, but. People's wallets are being impacted. Um, fuel prices are high for those people who don't even pay attention to f- fuel prices or noticing fuel prices are high. Uh, if you have a much more uh, limited disposable income, it's actually dramatic, actually, the cost uh, at which everything uh, has has gone up. We're trying to do uh, a, a project, uh, and that project now, um, literally in the time that we've been discussing it, has gone up 10 or 12 percent. Um, you know, uh, you've experienced that sting uh, as well as we all have. How is this going to be affecting travel and especially the most lucrative part of business travel? Because, you know, there is this sense that business travelers will pay anything, but actually business travelers won't pay anything. And when you get to the kind of prices that we're approaching now, you and I both know people who've decided, I'm just not going to do that. And I will fly in the front of the uh, economy cabin, for example. I will fly economy plus. Yeah, there's so much to discuss here. You know, first and foremost, um, I, I this is the first time in a very long time in all of our careers being a you know, gentleman of a certain age that uh, we've really had to get into this issue of elasticity because frankly, through the, how many decades now, costs have been coming pretty consistently down. A few spikes taken care of by long-term contracts and hedging and whatever else, but the prospect of very serious inflation, maybe lasting a year, maybe lasting two, maybe for the rest of our lives, who knows, Uh, We haven't seen that since, well, when I was in high school, when you were in high school, we're all scrambling to understand what it means. And of course, that gets into the question of elasticity. You know, to what extent does demand get thrown off by higher prices? And of course, as the saying goes, the cure for higher prices is higher prices. Now, it's not just um, higher fuel costs, higher crew costs, whatever else it costs to run an airline, plenty of other things, even the price of little bags of pretzels, all of it's going up. There's also the need to make up for gobs of lost cash. You know, you look at the sheer cash drain at airlines over the past few years, even with government help, it's been pretty awful. So understandably, they're trying to make the proverbial hay while the sun is still shining. Now, I can't help but wonder, second big point, if we aren't being a bit diluted by the inevitable strength of the recovery. You know, when the market drops by 66% year over year, 80% or 85% at its lowest point, no matter what, you know, you could, you could give people standing room only at, 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 you know, $3,000 to cross the U.S. They're going to pay. The the recovery is going to be strong. Now, what do you do for an encore? When, what do you do when people say, oh, finally, I can visit my family again. Finally, I can go and see business colleagues again. In when the market is fully recovered everywhere outside of China, say sometime next year, um, what do you do when people say, oh, I was going to fly, but no, not at those prices. And that's going to be a fascinating moment because, again, we haven't dealt with this elasticity issue in some time. And again, if inflation persists and if these costs stay high, we're going to have a major issue as an industry. You know, I mean, I think it's important to remember that some of the structural downshift in air travel demand, we were starting to deal with in 2019 for a variety of headwinds, you know, reasons of headwinds, uh, diminished trade in Asia, slow down in China, whatever else. And you were seeing it in 2019 air travel numbers, which went from, you know, the very comfortable, I think 6.5 in 2018 to just, you know, it was, un- it was five or a little less than five, like 4.2 in 2019, somewhere in that zone. So I, I think we could have that sort of classic division sign recovery where you get back uh, to peak in, say, 2023, 2024, you know, fourth quarter, first quarter, and then things go flat. And uh, I can't help but wonder if we are quite prepared for that outcome and if we're prepared to live in a world of what might be termed stagflation. Ron, your your sense on all this? Richard's um, exactly right. I mean, it's, I, I agree with you know, everything he said. Um, <clears throat> and and even, even more so, uh, you know, we, we were all 
kids the last time this happened. Um, there's very few people in leadership positions, let alone management positions at companies that have lived through this kind of environment. Um, and, you know, if, if you study it, one of the takeaways is inflation is generally stickier than what people hope. Um, expectations, you know, it's an expectations game and those expectations tend to be stickier. So, you know, back to that pretzel example of Richard's, you know, um, you know, the people working in the pretzel factory uh, on the labor side will be expecting to make more money in six months or 12 months or 24 months. Uh, same with the people selling the flour and the same, same with the people selling the little bags and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so pulling back on inflation can be really, really difficult. Um, and, you know, the hope in the market is, you know, so it's sort of the, <clears throat> the perennial hope is that the, the Fed will have a soft landing, but engineering a soft landing is, I don't know, typically seems like a bit of a unicorn. Um, it's a very, 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 very hard thing to do, particularly when the situation is global. Um, this isn't just the U.S. exporting inflation or, or vice versa. Like I've mentioned before on the podcast, in, 20, in 21 and 22, excuse me, in 2020 and 2021, Globally, um, through fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, um, there was uh, $32 trillion of stimulus. And for, you know, in those two years, global, global central banks, not just the US, were buying back $800 million of bonds an hour. And this year it's continued at 600 million an hour. Um, that has to have some sort of disruptive effect and you're starting to feel it. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an economist or whatever, I'm an aerospace engineer. Right? And, but we're in a situation on a global level that we've never been in before. So ultimately how this ends, where it goes, what happens, um, as far as I'm concerned, a little bit, we're in a little bit of the unknown. So, so we'll see. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, this is really one for the books in terms of an extraordinary series of factors that are all coming to a head simultaneously, um, which again, makes the situation uh, particularly problematic. Um, let me shift the conversation to uh, defense uh, for uh, a moment. I mean, there are a, a lot else uh, that I want to uh, get to. But, uh, Ron, you know, uh, on the Friday show, Michael Herson uh, of American Defense International, who, who watches Congress uh, for the Washington Roundtable program, you, you know, and, and it became something that was discussed by the whole group, was the number of Republican votes that voted against uh, the Ukraine aid package. Uh, arguing that, you know, the, the United States um, should not be, you know, that it's about the spending. We're already spending too much money. And, and there is a sense that defense is going to get caught up in this, that, um, you know, there, there was this hope that, you know, a lot more money may be going to defense. I think ultimately there will be the votes in order to get money for defense, but there will be a bigger debt debate that's going to get queued up, uh, especially as it looks like Republicans are going to win at least the House, if not the House and the Senate. Uh, right. And anytime there's a Democratic president, if there's a Republican president, Republicans don't care a lot about that. If there's a Democratic president, that becomes a big issue for them and, and they're going to try to make it a big issue. Um, from, from your standpoint, are, are you changing any of your prognosis regarding what the outlook for defense spending is, is going to be, especially if it looks like we're going to be getting into tougher economic shape? No, no, not, not, not yet. Um, although, I mean, the point you bring up, I think is a really good one. If, if you look back in history and, you know, we do this political control model where we do defense budget forecasting based on um, you know, changes in Congress and roll call voting and so on and so forth. And, and one of the things you, you, you can take away from that, that I think some investors find counterintuitive um, Generally, the, the best thing for spending is a split Congress uh, for defense. Um, and if, if we get into a situation where both houses um, become controlled by the, the Republicans, um, you, you can have a situation where the budget does come in more focused. And not that we'd have a you know, Tea Party movement all over again, but you, you, get, you get a similar dynamic where there is this you know, much more extreme focus on, on, on the budget. Um, for any number of reasons, so we'll we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But um, I do think um, that's something to watch uh, going forward, um, and we'll see how it goes. Because if you remember, the last time we got into a similar similar situation, um, we got into the whole you know debate where we we got into the sequester uh, right. with the Obama administration. So um, it's a it's a something that has a historical precedent, and it and it's something definitely to keep an eye out for. 
Well, uh, right. I mean, we got into that mess because a group of Republicans were, were going to default the nation on its debt, and we needed to do a deal to prevent that outcome from happening. And, and those sentiments are brewing again, right, which is, which is the concern uh, of our sort of bipartisan panel. Uh, we're, we're concerned about whether or not that uh, perfect storm could approach uh, and wash on our shore, it, shores it's, uh, again. And it's definitely something to watch. I mean, clearly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Sash, you, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I, mean, I just wanted to follow up on that. Um, so the implied question about the correlation between or the link between economic circumstances and defense spending. And just from a European point of view, but I mean, in general, defense spending is not a terribly discretionary purchase for, for governments. It's, you spend what you have to when you have to. If you can get away with it, you spend as little as possible. I mean, you know, very few countries that are in a sustained period of peace spend an immense amount of money on defense. Um, but when you when you have to, you spend what it takes. And most often, certainly in the last century or so, you've tended to bankrupt the country in the process. But you worry about that a lot later. And, you know, I think if you look at European defense spending, um, Europeans aren't spending on defense and increasing their defense budgets. And, you know, our thesis has been the nearer you are to Russia, the more you're spending and the more your defense budget is going to go up. The further you are from Russia, the less your defense budget is going to go up relative to its pre-war trajectory. But, you know, European nations will spend what it takes, A, because we're so frightened of Russia, and B, because, and this is really important, we're very, very worried that if President Trump gets back in again in two years' time, he will pull out of NATO, because that's what he said he was going to do, and we, the Europeans, are going to be all on our own, and we are going to have to sort, sort everything out ourselves. Um, and so, uh, you know, to put this into the perspective of the comments made by the um, German finance minister this week, where he said, you know, all European nations should be spending less, period, you know, get your budgets under control. And this was, you know, strongly, strongly implied, we Germany shouldn't be spending as much on defence as we are. You know, I'd make two points. First of all, he's the finance minister. That's his job. Finance ministers are always there to try to put the brakes on things. Um, but actually, when he's talking about defence spending in the middle of a war that is occurring within, well within a thousand kilometres of the German frontier, Actually, that issue is above his pay grade. But two, he, in Germany, he's a free Democrat. Free Democrats are budget hawks. Always have been, always will be. Um, it's a coalition. Ultimately, he's going to have to go along with what the coalition decides. There's a lot of evidence that Ch Chancellor, Federal Chancellor Schultz is pretty dovish on defence. But that's compared to pretty much everybody else in the Bundestag at the moment. He can get any defence spending bill he wants through the Bundestag. Um, and... Uh, you know, it may be that, you know, the irony is that the, the federal chancellor and finance minister are unrepresentatively dovish compared to everybody else in, in the Bundestag. But I, I don't see the issue of economics as being what stops uh, or has an impact on defence spending, certainly over here. The issue is how threatened do you feel? How badly prepared were you before this war? And therefore, how much have you got to make up? And it's uh, Charles uh, Lindner uh, is, uh, who uh, gave an interview to the FT. And in that interview said, look, we, we understand, but it's important to get to the stability and growth pact. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we did have to do what we did during the pandemic. Let's not be, you know, wedded to a loosey-goosey uh, financial approach as, as, we, as we move ahead. And I think Christine Lagarde at the uh, European uh, Central Bank has sort of mirrored those kind of comments that, look, we're in a transitional period, but, um, you know, we do need to get to some form of fiscal discipline at the uh, at the end of this, if I'm not mistaken, without. Yeah, uh, I, look, I think that's right. But I'm, I would be really surprised if I mean, I particularly Christine Lagarde, defense just is not within her purview. Um, she's a very, very talented banker in every respect, but she doesn't do and defense, uh, she can't have any influence on what people spend on our countries spend on defense. And, it, um, and even I think it's Christoph Lindahl. Um, you know, this is a decision that is made at the absolute top of uh, countries, and it's made by the country's parliament. Um, would he have a majority in parliament for, you know, for including defence in a in sort of spending restraint? At the moment, no way. Richard, uh, do you um, have anything? Because I'm going to ask uh, Sash one question, and then uh, I want to uh, move on a little a little bit. But Richard, do you have anything you want to add? I would just argue very strongly in favor of what Sasha said. This is all about politics, nothing to do with economics. And what's really disturbing is that the 50-something 
Republican lawmakers who are against aid to the Ukraine are suddenly concerned about baby formula and things like that. In other words, they're using populist arguments to not aid Ukraine against Russia and implicitly not spend it on defense at all. They're not arguing in favor of a reprioritization of cash towards American defense needs. They are arguing in, in favor of something popular, something that I think that'll get votes and, uh, oh, inadvertently, probably help out Putin. So there's a real issue here, an extremely serious one. The numbers aren't large enough, but uh, as Ron says, uh, watch this very closely. Um, if you want intellectual consistency, uh, I think you're looking at the wrong place and we could devote 10 programs uh, to, uh, to that, but we don't have time for that. Um, Sash, let me just ask uh, a question, right? I mean, um, uh, the Northern Ireland protocol uh, is, so the UK has been talking about unilaterally changing the Brexit deal. Uh, European, um, you know, I was talking to a Swedish friend of mine who said, well, listen, if they can't abide by their treaties when blood is not on the line, why should we believe uh, the UK? I mean, this is always the the ticklish part of, of changing any treaty that you've signed, whether it's the United States or anybody else. It becomes problematic because then they could say, well, you'll pick or choose. And when it comes to a security arrangement, you you may decide uh, to not do that. What What are the stakes here? Uh, more more broadly, um, you know, and and does this uh, undermine the word of the United Kingdom uh, as a security partner? Because obviously Boris Johnson has been trying to do uh, a a good job there and and show Britain to be the security leader that it that that it not only sees itself but that it is. Yuck! I mean, you, the the Brexit deal was was and is horribly flawed. The Northern Ireland Protocol is horribly and was horribly horribly flawed. There are ways to change it. The problem is that the UK is a weak partner in that unless it, unless it threatens to do unacceptable things. That doesn't make those remotely acceptable. Um, and I think this is going to be a very, very toxic situation um, for some time to come. I mean, you know, it, it's worth being, you know, the Brexit protocol is, or sorry, the Northern Ireland protocol is absolutely at the you know, bleeding edge of what the Good Friday Agreement, uh, uh, you know, allowed, and what the UK or what the, what was Johnson's government wanted in terms of free trade agreement, um, it probably actually, you know, was untenable and shouldn't have been signed. But they did, and that's where we are. I'm going to. I, I don't often do ad hominems. I think, but you know, your your Swedish contact um, drawing a, you know, drawing a, you know, uh, a line between. The UK is verging on totally unacceptable behaviour uh, with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the security deal with Sweden is a bit rich. The security deal with Sweden is a very, very one-sided one. We've said we will we will help Sweden. We get nothing in return. So, you know, uh, it's not like the Northern Ireland Protocol where actually both sides get something in return. Um, it's just the UK government at the moment doesn't think it's, uh, it's enough or, or acceptable. But, you know, if... Um, the UK was the first country to uh, offer any sort of, um, you know, treaty support to Sweden and Finland. Um, you can say you don't want to trust us. That's absolutely fine. You're, um, you know, I, there's absolutely nothing that any nation can do. Arguably, that's the biggest problem with NATO. You know, you've still got to rely on everybody in NATO turning up when they say they're going to. Um, by and large, we tend to believe that they will. Um, you've got to rely on every nation in NATO supporting the use of nuclear weapons when it's believed they are going to be necessary. I mean, boy, that's a that's a big imponderable, isn't it? Um, I think I'll, I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah, um, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, the concern obviously was that it, it was being negotiated with an eye to breaking it. Uh, ultimately, and and I, I don't know why anybody's surprised because I think this is the eventuality that we feared. You know, I think I'm reflecting, and and it wasn't just a person who said this over the course of uh, the week. As anybody knows, I'm I'm pretty uh, pro British when it comes to uh, a lot of this stuff, and I think the United Kingdom uh, expressed enormous leadership uh, both in the run up uh, to Ukraine and since. It's just you know, anytime something like this happened, people begin to ask questions like that. And it's the, the same that happens when the United States abrogates uh, uh, or, or appears to unilaterally abrogate uh, an agreement. At what other point will that happen? Uh, you know, if they're willing to do this over something that is purely economic, will they abide to something that uh, that, 
you know, could could in, in, involve, um, you know, sacrificing troops ultimately. Let's, Actually, I would. I, so I'd, I'd take it. I'd, so I take issue with you. The, the problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol is it's not purely economic. It is a protocol that reflects um, a previous agreement that um, was achieved after an immense amount of loss of uh, loss of life by, you know, all sides concerned. Well, so the, the Northern Ireland Protocol is not just an economic thing. It is trying to square the circle of economics oh. and the uh, the Good Friday Agreement. It that, doesn't do that very well. Cr- shouldn't have been cr- signed, but... Yeah, but, you know, I mean, we, we could have argued... I mean, right, I mean, folks knew this to be an issue at the time Brexit happened. It still happened. I completely agree with you that it's a... Uh, uh, it was a very deadly issue and, and resolved a deadly issue. Unfortunately, with that as a consequence of all of this is moving backward and uh, may, may well, may well go there. And, and obviously one of the, you know, Sinn Féin uh, had a big win, uh, historic win. Um, and, and the DUP is, you know, does not want to negotiate with uh, the, the, the new administration thinking that it has leverage. I mean, it's, it's just a tough situation all around uh, and certainly one that's going to be worth uh, watching. Um, let me sash uh, shift gears. I want to talk about Boeing, uh, in a moment, because I think everybody has a lot of views on that. But just sort of get your sense on what Anthony Albanese's win uh, in Australia potentially means for AUKUS, because in uh, the eight months or so since the agreement was signed, there is a recognition on everybody's part that this is going to be infinitely harder to do. Um, there are no PWR2 reactors, right? So continuing the astute line becomes very problematic. Uh, the United States is operating pedal to the metal in terms of building as many submarines that it wants. And the United States is still at 1.6 uh, attack submarines. It's not quite a two uh, yet. We're developing the Columbia class and all eyes are on making sure that stays on track. So our system actually doesn't have elasticity to slip another Virginia in it. And it's also not abundantly clear that we're going to be able to design another submarine unless we bring the actually the French into it. And the French have non-proliferation concerns. And indeed, this new Australian government is is different from the last government. Where, where are we going with AUKUS? And does this actually become sort of a broader strategic technology, quantum, uh, cryptography, you know, you name it, kind of five eyes, uh, th- three eyes, uh, three guys uh, deal that ultimately does not involve, you know, it's raison d'etre, which is nuclear attack submarines. No, I just agree. I, I mean, nuclear attack submarines was the catalyst. It wasn't its raison d'etre. The raison d'etre was always deeper. Uh, I, you know, I'm totally intimate industrial ties between the US, Australia, and uh, and the UK. The attack submarines was the was the starting point for it. I think what's been fascinating about AUKUS is that just in the last couple of months, AUKUS has, has very publicly expanded to include uh, hypersonics and counter hypersonics, and talking to uh, a couple of companies here in the UK who will remain nameless for some reasons, but the the degree to which AUKUS has broadened out and and dragged more, or you know, brought more companies in, looking at different aspects of the the high end defence technology relationship between the two companies has has actually been quite a surprise to me. I thought it was going to be just submarines, and until we ha- actually had a boat in the water, that be it. But no, you know, companies are talking about a far broader range of things. The problem, as you rightly point out, is that is an industrial one. It's not actually a technological one. It's an industrial one. Um, the U.S. Uh, submarine enterprise is completely maxed out. U.K. submarine enterprise slightly less so. But, yeah, you know, you're right. There, there are no spare reactors. A, a PWR2 or whatever it ends up being is a five-year enterprise, seven-year enterprise, you know, just, just to, to build one of those. And they need to be... You know, if, if that is going to be what is built, um, they need to be doing long lead items right now. Um, a a senior to... former Royal Navy friend of mine told me it's closer to a 10 year enterprise uh, on well, that. Yeah. And, yeah they, exactly. and the entire ecosystem has moved to PWR3 for Dreadnought. So if that's the case, the question is, is it another um, astute submarine? Uh, there are people in the UK who are saying that the seventh astute boat will be loaned, leased, whatever term we want to use it, to Australia, and then another one will be built. I have never heard people in the industry talk about an eighth pursuit uh, boat being built before the last month or so. Um, so that, that of itself is remarkable. 
Is it possible then that the boats that Australia ultimately gets are a hybrid of a PWR3 reactor with an astute hull? Yeah, that's possible. Um, it's a mid-2030s to mid-2040s issue, frankly. And no, it's not. It's a 2040s issue. But um, I, I've been very interested by the, by the progress being made uh, on AUKUS, by the breadth of AUKUS, and the degree to which you know, industry and people who should know in the industry here are saying things that were considered to be um, impossible even at the time of the signing of the uh, contract. Is Australia going to get a, a you know, a, a submarine built, designed in Australia for their own use by the end of the decade? Hell no. End of the 2030s, it's a possibility, but it's a very, very long-term issue. I think AUKUS will be far broader, though, as we go into the 2030s. Uh, I, I agree, and and I think that that's the driver of the agreement. I was just sort of curious whether um, you have any indication with the change of um, administration, uh, whether or not that changes uh, any, quite, I, I think any, quite the opposite. any I think, of the I dynamic we've seen so far. I think what's been interesting about Antony Albanese is the only, the only comments that he's made about old AUKUS is that he wish he'd got a briefing, uh, you know, a, a briefing from Scott Morrison earlier, and the whole issue of briefing about AUKUS within the Australian government and with the US was clearly done badly. But I mean, he, he's as committed to AUKUS as, uh, as Morrison was. Which is good news, ultimately, among uh, three allies uh, that are, uh, you know, interested in what the outcome uh, of uh, uh, the security situation in Asia is. Um, let me uh, broaden this out. Does anybody have any AUKUS points before we go and, and spend a couple of minutes talking about Boeing? Going once, going twice, three times, sold, run. Uh, start us off. Uh, Starliner news was good news. Uh, the spacecraft succeeded after a, a first uh, test that was touch and go, uh, much delayed, but obviously uh, great that the spacecraft made it in orbit and the United States now has two spacecraft uh, it can send into orbit. Uh, SpaceX, obviously, uh, Crew Dragon being one of them. Uh, and uh, the news reporting that we have that uh, the you know that it was a, a tragic outcome either way, and I'm not trying to characterize it as good news because 132 people lost their lives, but that it indicates that it wasn't a mechanical issue with the airplane, but that it appears to have been a, a pilot, uh, tragically a pilot uh, induced uh, accident. Uh, and at the same time, we have folks who are calling for uh, management change and you know reflected in order count um, and Airbus you know, um, you know, saying we're, we're looking good. Where are we? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it continues to be, um, pretty volatile in, in the world of Boeing right now. Um, as you pointed out, there's, you know, been calls by, uh, uh, customers, airlines, leasing companies, um, uh, the defense community uh, worries about Boeing, um, you know, suggestions for, you know, the company needs management change, so on and so forth. Um, you know, let's talk about some of the highlights this week, like you, you pointed out. I mean, the Starliner worked out. That's, that's clearly a good thing. Uh, AIG, British Airways, International Airline Group, um, ordered a bunch of 737s, uh, fewer than they originally had suggested, but that's usually a good thing, getting some orders. However, interestingly enough, in the order, they did say they got them at a significant discount. Um, which typically airlines don't say. So um, that would suggest that they really got them at a discount. Um, it's it, it's kind of this whole debate. I mean, it's been going on. You know, we've been talking about it for a while, but um, in the investor community, really this last earnings report um, brought a lot of things together. Um, out of the fixed income investment community, um, you're hearing an increasing drumbeat about, you know, maybe the company needs to do an equity raise. Um you know, we've written that we actually don't think that's going to be required unless they ran into some sort of liquidity issue, which we don't think they will. I mean, they have um, plenty of sources of liquidity, but on many different fronts right now, you know, there's a lot of uh, an increasing drumbeat for change at Boeing uh, on, on different levels. Uh, and you, you've seen, you know, that the share price has really reflected that. Um, it's almost fully round trip the lows where it got to during you know the worst of the COVID downturn. Um, so it's it's a it's a volatile time at the company and you know there's there's questions around seven eight seven going still going back into service. Uh, you know there was press reports out there that you know Boeing 
handed in you know all the, uh, everything they needed but then the FAA gave it back to them saying hey you know you got to finish your homework um, and maybe that's just normal part of part of due course but um, that doesn't make anybody feel feel warm and fuzzy about things so it's 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 a it's a volatile time I and mean, it's the best best way to say it and it's it's being reflected in uh, in the equity Sash, uh, your your sense on where we are, and then uh, Richard, because I mean, it's, I like- you know, there are those in our audience who listen to this and wonder why we spend so much time on this. We spend so much time on this because it's very important. Um, the company, you know, folks are rooting for the company. There are European friends of mine who are rooting for the company. Okay, yeah. um, I know people at Airbus who are rooting for the company, um, and um, you know, but there is this sense of frustration. Uh, John Ostrower uh, wrote a, a, a great piece. Those Pentagon concerns are not new. Uh, the Pentagon leadership has been harboring these concerns and that they've been growing for some time uh, about uh, the company's ability to execute uh, programs. You know, KC-46 was only one example of it. Uh, we're seeing challenges with the T-7 trainer. Uh, we're seeing challenges across uh, the portfolio on other programs as well. So, um, you know, t- take take it away. Well, look, I, to answer your question, why, why do we talk about this pretty much every single week? We talk about this because... From my personal point of view, I never thought in my professional career that I would see not only Boeing number two in the, in the market, um, civil aircraft market, but a really weak number two, uh, a, um, you know, a number two that may not make it back and may not actually you know, survive the next product cycle. That is absolutely astonishing. And anybody who thinks that uh, you know, Boeing's recovery back to parity with Airbus is going to be easy, I think probably hasn't been looking closely enough at the at the situation. Um, so that that's why we talk about this. This is you know I'm saying it's unprecedented. Is uh, you know Virgin non banal. It is it is utterly remarkable that Boeing should be in a state such as this, um, and therefore it's worth spending time on. And I just want to. I mean, I've, I've got nothing to add to Ron's analysis of the you know the rest of events this week. I'd just like though to to question or to challenge Ron on the issue of an equity uh, raise. I worry that purely by focusing on liquidity, i.e. just how much cash does Boeing have in its coffers at any stage. Remember, you know, that's gross cash, not net cash. Whether that's not missing the point. Um, There's a very interesting uh, interview um, with Dominic Assam, the uh, chief financial officer of Airbus this week in the Financial Times. And Assam is focused on getting Airbus back to having net cash of 10 billion euros. Because his view is, you need to have a big buffer at any stage to cope with stuff, you, you know, come back to unknown unknowns again, stuff we don't know about. Remember, Airbus had a cash outflow. It went from having 12 billion of net cash to being uh, indebted in three quarters uh, when coronavirus hit. Um, that's why you start off with net cash so that you can you can cope with that. It wasn't actually much of a liquidity issue, but, it, but once they were down in net debt, that closed off a huge load of options. And if Airbus had needed to spend on new product, if Airbus had needed to spend on customer financing, um, if Airbus had needed to spend on you know, M&A that it couldn't with- withdraw from, any of those, and probably more as well, it would have been in a really bad position. Hence, big civil aircraft companies, big aerospace companies need a ton of cash. Um, and Boeing's biggest problem and the board's biggest sin has been to think that you could just give it all back in uh, share buybacks to uh, investors, in my humble opinion. Um, but so I think focusing on liquidity is thinking about it wrong. The question is, what does Boeing need to survive into the 2030s? What do they need to get back to being number, uh, you, know, no, you know, joint number one again? Um, what do they need in terms of product development? And what do they need in case the uh, customer financing market dries up and the OEMs have to do it themselves? And we would argue they need net cash, just like Airbus does. And if that's the case, how do you get from 42 billion in net debt to some net cash with cash flow alone in the next three, four, five years. I we're not convinced the maths adds up, but I'd be you know love to hear Ron's and Richard's view on that. Richard, take it away. We're perilously short on time. Richard, uh, take it away, uh, and then Ron, if you want to comment on it, and very quickly, I've got to get thirty or so seconds uh, on where we think the pandemic uh, is going, cases rising, and then of course uh, this the uh, you know a new challenge on the horizon, uh, which is monkeypox. Very very different, but again, uh, a lot of alarmism that's uh, surrounding that. Uh, Richard, Ron, and then uh, one of you gets to grab the monkeypox uh, question. Uh, and it might it might be Richard. Okay, go ahead. 
Yeah, uh, you know, Ron, of course, is right about volatility and customer pushback uh, reaching unprecedented levels, but having been with us for some time, uh, I strongly endorse uh, Sasha's point. It's more than just, you know, where does cash come from? It's what do you do with it? What do you need to do with that cash? Absolutely right. Uh, I guess what we're left with is uh, why? What the hell? Uh, you know, it's just none of this makes any sense. You know, I, I wrote, I guess, when Calhoun came in, he's either going to be the world's best nine month caretaker CEO or the world's worst if he stayed. And he stayed. Um, I have no idea what's going on here. I mean, it's one thing if there was leadership being provided, pushback to say, no, these programs are going to get better. We're going to provide the resources needed. Yes, this is what we're going to do on the cash front. This is, this is the product. These are the products we're looking at. This is what we're doing to turn it around, but there's none of that. So what are we left with here? These people aren't stupid, far from it. Uh, what's their motivation? And I, it makes no sense to break up the company. On the other hand, the DNA of the people involved here is to break up a company. That's <laughs> very clear. And frankly, that's the only explanation here, that they do have an endgame. It isn't pretty. I hope this isn't the base case scenario. I don't think it's at all a desirable scenario this is arguably what should be, as Sash put it, the world's foremost aerospace company. But I'm beginning to suspect motivations here because there's a complete unwillingness to do what should be done, uh, a complete absence of communication here. And uh, oh boy, that stock price says that no, they are in fact not doing the right thing. So what is happening other than a preparation for that great GE Jack Welch playbook? It, that is a uh, very interesting question. I mean, there, the, you know, the, the other uh, another interpretation of some of the challenges that we're seeing is, you know, after the company is confronting the way that it's been doing business and the problems that that's caused. And so folks are finding um, things wrong. Um, and it's it's good that they're reporting it internally because you don't fix it unless you honestly report it. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are working really hard to try to do the right thing and to do the corrective action. It's just, it's, it's very hard work. Uh, hey, I'm not, I'm not buying it for that. a moment. We've, we've known since McNerney stepped down after he did his level best to give the company a lobotomy and to, well, make every bad deal he could, um, that there were very big problems. I, it, what's been known, I mean, we've been talking about it on this show for as long as we've been doing this show, um, and it's been many pleasant years. I've lost track of how many, but we know a lot of other people know everyone in, you know, the equity market crowd certainly knows investors. I think know a lot of customers have known for a very long time. It's only recently they have felt empowered enough to push back. Yes, there are great people within the organization, within Boeing, who've been trying to do the right thing. That is absolutely right. But at the very top, I think they know and they're not doing it. So what are the possible explanations? Well, um, that, that, that's, that's a good point. I mean, what I was saying is that in the company folks are doing it, you can, um, you, I think a lot of people would agree that from the very top is that inspirational leadership message coming from senior leadership, percolating down through the ranks, sort of mobilizing the whole team. Hey, let's get to the bottom of this and dig out to the other side of it. And, the, and that that does not appear uh, uh, to your point, Richard, right? I mean, that is not what we're hearing. Um, which, uh, which, which doesn't, uh, which, which, which tends to erode confidence. Uh, Ron, uh, your uh, quick follow up on it because uh, you know Sash obviously kicked the question over to you. Uh, address that, and then whoever wants to take thirty seconds and talk to us about where we are in the pandemic and monkeypox, understanding fully that nobody here is an epidemiologist. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't dis disagree with Sash at all. I mean, I think what he said is exactly right. However, um, that is what they should do. And I was addressing what I think they're going to do. Um, and I think that's the difference between kind of the, the point of view I'm taking and not to put words in Sasha's mouth, Sasha's mouth, what he's doing, what he is saying. And clearly what he said is 100% right. And that's what they should do. Um, although my sense is um, it's all about kind of survival of, uh, you know, any management team that would go to their board today and try to do an equity raise where the with the shares where they are um, would probably just get shown the door. And my guess is they don't want to do that. Um, so that that that's why I think they're just kind of coming back to this from a liquidity reason. They don't need to do it um, for the long term health of the company. 
Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you could argue, you know, doing equity raise, doing airplane and all that kind of stuff. I mean, um, but so, so anyway, I think that's, that's the difference. It's just sort of which point of view you're looking at, what should they do? What will they most likely do? Uh, agreed. Um, Richard, do you want to take this uh, monkeypox, what it means, um, right? Uh, concern uh, brewing about that and, and uh, a little bit of concern about COVID and, and where we're going with it. Uh, a friend is going to Eastern Europe, uh, very proud of her country for, um, you know, hosting so many Ukrainian refugees, but expressing concern about the COVID outlook because they're like, look, you know, um, almost everybody back home is fully vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. And yet, um, you know, a lot of these guys aren't right. It's it's less about worried about Ukrainians, more worried about the vaccination levels. So again, I mean, it is an issue that's lingering for 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 some. Uh, and indeed, a friend of mine uh, recently traveled and was surprised nobody was wearing masks and was kind of stressed out about that, right? I mean, they had a mask on, but we're a little bit concerned that nobody else was wearing masks. You know, wh- wh- where are we? Where are we going? And you know, what is it we know about monkeypox that we should or should not be concerned about? You couldn't ask for a more you know, scary, comical uh, name for a worrisome new development. Uh, But here we are, right? Uh, I think it sort of gives credence to the people who've been saying that we're sort of entering the age of, uh, you know, greater numbers of pandemics just because of greater contact between nature and humans. And of course, just an awful lot of people living in close proximity to each other and sometimes to nature. Um, And and moving around and moving around more effortlessly than they've ever moved before. Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, so far, it doesn't sound like it's nearly as contagious as COVID. And hopefully it it stays that way. You have to currently be in fairly close proximity with that person. Uh, But obviously, all we can do is hope for the best. You know, regarding COVID, I think it's increasingly clear. The best analogy I've read in a long time, I think it was in the Atlantic, is just it's kind of becoming like smoking, you know, you can, you can choose to take risks, not get vaccinated, not express the, you know, not um, take the appropriate precautions. Um, and, it, and indeed, the, the level of risk will be kind of analogous to smoking. People who smoke a couple packs a day, yeah, they're more likely to have bad things happen. And hopefully it's, it's becoming like that, a matter of choice rather than something that's more serious, um, but you never know when there'll be another version, another variant rather. And uh, so far, nothing has appeared on the horizon, but we all have to be mindful. Everybody, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Thanks for doing this, Vago. Really enjoyed it. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.